All right, and good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. I got to give a special word of congratulations that nobody blew away on their way in this morning. Man, right as the first service let out, like the wind was kicking, I thought our tents and stuff were going to blow away. We're really glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're on week two of a series talking about the mission of our church, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit, but I want to I begin with a story. Uh, back when, before I was a lead pastor for about 13 years, I was a, 13 or 14 years, I was a youth pastor. And one of my favorite experiences, and I was at a couple different churches, but one of my favorite experiences throughout the year, every year, was going away for camp week. Now, if you've never been to camp week, you might not know. It's not like you're going camping or anything like that, but it's you're going away with a bunch of other youth groups. Your youth group goes, and, and you travel to, uh, to maybe some college campus or someplace, and, and you gather together. And the thing I loved about it was it was this really spiritually enriching and uplifting week. You'd have this incredible band, much like Dart and the guys up here today leading in worship. They'd have a great speaker who really challenged and equipped you, and, and the kids were really excited. They kind of got rid of their cell phones and had this spiritually focused week, and for that week, they really were trying to make much of Jesus in their lives, and, and so you have this spiritually uplifting week, but you're also hanging out with a group of middle school and high schoolers for a week straight. Like, it's not like you can send them home and go to mom and dad. It was for a week straight. You're responsible. They're not sleeping, so it means you're not sleeping. Some of the middle schoolers are not taking showers all week long, so you don't even go in their dorm room. Just leave it alone. Just They need to kind of have biohazard team come in afterwards. After. It's, just, it's, just, it's, it's, it's this great mess of, of greatness and terribleness and, and this awesome camp week. And you also have these practical jokes and just crazy things that would develop. Well, one year, I remember we had a, just a really good group of kids. And again, it was a lot of years we went to camp, and they kind of meld together after some time. But one year, I remember this year very vividly. We were getting ready to go to camp, and, and we had a bunch of, especially a bunch of really spiritually mature guys at that point. They're really excited about going to camp. Uh, in particular, one or two were really excited about rec day. And the thing is, every afternoon they had some sort of activity planned because they had so many kids that couldn't have everybody doing one thing. So they'd break you up. And, and probably about 100, 150 kids would go out and have rec day on each individual afternoon. So you only got one day of doing rec day. And for some reason that year as we got ready to go to camp, a couple of the guys, one in particular, his name was John. And he was really excited about rec day. Like the whole week leading up to it, he's like, man, all I want to do is I want to have a good rec day. Because they did have these big games with water balloons and all this craziness. He's like, man, I'm really excited about seeing what they do. And so we got there, we found out, I think it was Wednesday was the day that we got to do rec day. And so he was excited all week long building up to rec day, and I can't wait for this to happen. And then Wednesday rolls around, and it is pouring down rain. Like, like 3 a.m. this morning. Who got woke up by the rain at 3 a.m.? It was like that this morning, like trees falling down, like it was crazy. And, and so we wake up, and here's the thing about this particular camp. It was up in, in Madisonville, Tennessee, and the guy's dorm was down at the bottom of this giant hill. And so every day, the first thing you had to do as soon as you woke up was you had to walk up this hill to get to breakfast. It was so bad, some guys just said, I'm not even going to breakfast. But you plan the rest of your day around, I don't want to have to come up back, back and down this hill, so I'm going to grab all my stuff and stay up on the rest of the campus for the rest of the day. And so we wake up, and it's really raining really hard outside, so I tell the guys, listen, I'll drive the van up today. You don't have to go up the hill. We'll drive around the parking lot on the other side. So get in the van, and we go up, and, and so we kind of do our morning worship and the stuff that they do, and then we get to lunch. And we knew right after lunch was supposed to be wrecking. And the rain had started to, to subside a little bit. But it was still raining and it was really wet outside. And the wreck games involved running around. So I had a feeling the announcement that was about to come was coming. So at lunchtime, the camp director comes up and he says, Hey guys, I hate to inform you, but because of the weather outside, we cannot have wreck day this afternoon. 
and I knew for the guys, especially for this one guy, like he was going to be crushed. Like he was so all year long, that's all he anticipated. I knew he was going to be crushed. Uh, so we finish up, and I'm like, all right, guys, you've got a couple of free hours now since there's not rec day. And a lot of the other church youth groups were just going to their dorm and hanging out and stuff. And I noticed a group of our students had gathered outside at this hill that goes down towards our dorm. And it's not raining too hard, so that's fine. You guys can hang out there, but what are you doing? So I walk over, and I see this guy, and he has this thought kind of going in his mind. He's like, well, since we don't have rec day, I was thinking this, this, this hill, this grass hill is really, really wet. I think we can run and slide down this hill. How many of y'all have ever done a slip and slide before? How many know the day after slip and slide is real, like you hurt all over from doing slip and slide? I said, I can't imagine what it's like to slip and slide down a hill with no slip and slide. Like you're just on a hill, bumps and rocks, and we, we don't know. And so sure enough, this kid, John, he's crazy. He's like, I'm going to try it. He goes, man, he flies down this hill. Like it, it's better than any slip and slide I've ever seen. And so all the other guys start following, and eventually some of the girls jump in, and they're kind of doing this. And, and I knew it was coming. I should have run. Like, I should have run, because I knew it was coming. And, and John comes back. He's like, JJ, it's your turn. I looked. I'm like, I'm going to die. So I had, I had a choice, and it's like any other challenge in our life. We have a choice to either run from the challenge or embrace the challenge. Uh, that day, good or bad, I'm like, I'm going to embrace the challenge. Because here's the thing, if, if you try to do that and you like half-heartedly commit to it, that's when you get hurt. Like you start to go and then you kind of stop, that's when people break legs and all that craziness. So I'm like, if I'm going to do this, and so I came running and I jump and I slide down the hill, I'm like, guys, one time, that's it. And I did it and I said, all right, I did it, that was good, I embraced that challenge. Well, we're in the midst of a series right now where we're talking about this idea of, of embracing a challenge. And I'm going to be honest with you, when we talk about embracing the mission of the church, as much as we can try to clean that up and make it sound really, really nice, the challenge that we face, if we do this right, is probably even a little bit crazier than the challenge of sliding down a hill. You see, we're going to look at these words of Jesus today. As we've been kind of building this idea of, of we have four pillars. We have, we have a mission statement we'll get to in a second. And the four pillar statements to kind of support that mission statement for where we're at right now. And as we try to do these things, we're going to look at some words that Jesus taught, some words that were taught by some of his disciples. We're going to say, okay, what does that mean for us? And then how do we make that practical in one specific area? But before we do that, I just want to kind of remind everybody, here's our mission statement as a church. RPC exists to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus. But we want to do that by building a church unchurched people love to attend. So our purpose is to lead all people in a growing relationship with Jesus, but by, do, by building a church, unchurched people love to attend. And what that means is we want to build a church where if people have never been to church before, they can come in and they can be embraced and loved and all those things. But what we've seen over the past couple of years is not only are we reaching people that typically don't have never been to church, but we also start reaching people who've been to church and they're kind of, we call it the church, people who've been to church and they get tired of some of the politics involved. Now let me say this before we get into this, there are no perfect churches. Every church has issues and challenges, but here's what I've seen just over the course of, of being involved in ministry for 15 years, is sometimes churches can have a tendency to, to fight and have all these squabbles about the smallest and slightest of things that have no bearing at all in the kingdom of God. Like, we fight about the, the dumbest things, and, and, and we fight about things like we gather together, and church says, hey, we need to change the color of our carpet. And so we're going to have a big church vote, and everybody's going to get their say. Listen, if you have 200 people try to pick out color, guess how that's going to go? 
Nobody's, there are going to be 200 choices after you're done. Like, no one's going to like it. And they vote about church carpet, and, and then someone gets upset, and they leave because they don't get the color that they want. Or, or a visitor walks into church on a Sunday morning. And it's a traditional church. They don't have chairs like we have, but they have pews. And, and a visitor walks in, and you know they're a visitor because they get there 15 minutes early. Now, some of the regulars get there like 15 minutes late. But the visitors get there 15 minutes early, and they come, and they kind of find a row, and they sit in their pew, and they sit down. And then before they know it, a regular who'd been around for a long time comes walking up, and they're like, uh, excuse me, you're in my pew. And the visitor's like, they're all apologetic. I'm sorry, I, I didn't see the name on the seat. Well, I, I don't know, like, and, and, and we get upset about stupid things, and we don't make people feel welcome. Or we get upset about things like worship style. Traditional church again, and, and uh, they have their organ and the piano on either side of the church, and, and someone decides to take the organ out, and, and people leave the church because they take the organ out, and they say, you can't worship God without an organ. And we laugh. And I've seen all those things. Those are specific examples I've seen in churches that I've served in. And we fight about these stupid things. And I ask this question, where is the hope in all of that? Like people come in and, and as I read the words of Jesus, I don't see Jesus say, hey, get upset if you don't get your say in what color the carpet is. Or hey, get really upset if, if, if someone's sitting in your chair or if, if your instrument isn't up there. We don't get upset about those things, and yet we see that happen over and over. And instead, we say we want to embrace the words that Jesus and his disciples taught. And we want to embrace this challenge. So if you have your Bibles, do this. Flip back to 2 John. It's towards the end of the Bible, 2 John, right before you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then you have Jude, then you have the final book, is the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about this idea of, of really being bought in Uh, to the mission that God has for us. And and if we're going to accept the mission, we have to realize the only way the mission of the church is accomplished is through the people of the church. We can't sit here and say, hey, we got a neat mission statement. We know this is our mission statement. And if we just walk in the door, it's just automatically going to happen. The mission of the church is only accomplished by the people of the church. What that means is if we say these are the four pillars of things that we want to be involved in, then it's ultimately the point where we say once we make a decision to be bought in, once we say, we don't do church membership here, in the coming weeks we're going to talk about church partnership, and that's a, that's a yearly agreement saying, just like membership, I want to be part of Richpoint, we'll explain all that in a couple of weeks. But once you decide to be a partner with us in doing ministry, we say now we want to tag team together to make the biggest dent in Polk County that we can. And so we say we want to embrace this mission, this becomes the mission of the church, and the only way the mission of the church is accomplished is through the people of the church. We can't accomplish the mission because we know the mission statement. It's not about liking the mission statement. It's not about agreeing with the mission statement. It's about when we embrace the mission statement that we can both enhance it and we can start to enlarge it. So in 2 John, he's writing here, and and, and John is writing, and and, and let me explain a little bit about this. First of all, you have uh, John, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is also the author of the Gospel of John, which we talked about last week. is one of the four Gospels. And he's also the author of the book of Revelation. Now, the Gospel of John is about the life of Jesus. It was written a short time after his life. And, and Jesus lived from about 4 B.C. to about 30 A.D. Uh, in the final couple of years, he amassed a group of disciples. John was one of those disciples. So John is alive in, in 30 A.D. He might have been as young as being a teenager, maybe in his early 20s. But here's the thing. By the time we get to him writing the, the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revela- Revelation, it's towards the end of his life. It's probably, we think Revelation was written about 90 A.D. So it's probably between 85 and 90 A.D. that John is writing these particular letters and, and the book of Revelation. 
So that has that meant that 60 years, about 60 years have transpired from the time Jesus was here on earth to the time he's writing these things. Now, if you could imagine, in 60 years, two generations have gone by. John is the last remaining disciple. He's the last full tie back to Jesus. So he writes these letters to the church. And as he's writing to the church, he's writing in such a way that he has an air of authority. Even today in our culture, we, we find people who maybe they're 100 years old and maybe they, they fought in, in, in some battle. They were part of some particular historical event. And when we talk to them, it's not just the same as reading a history book. But we're talking to someone who is an eyewitness to history. And so when they teach, we're gonna, they're going to be able to describe the feelings and the emotion of, of that event much more than a history book is going to be able to. So when John's hearers are, are listening to him speak and, and seeing what he writes, he writes with the air of authority that is much more powerful than something we read in a history book. And so when John writes this particular letter, he's writing, he, he refers to the elect lady in the first verse. The elect lady is simply a reference to the church. He'll do that again because we're going to pick up in verse 4. So if you're reading in your Bible, 2 John verse 4 says this, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now he's speaking to the elect lady who's the church. So he says, I'm rejoicing greatly to find some people in your church that are still walking in the truth, just as we are commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, again referencing the church, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He says, here's the charge that we've had from the beginning. The command I'm giving you isn't a new command. The command is a command to love. This is the command we've had from the very beginning. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. He says this. He says, this is love when we really want to love God. We walk according to his commandments. But then he says this. Notice the switch. He goes from commandments, plural, to this is the commandment. Just as you've heard from the beginning... So that you should walk in it. He switches from commandments to commandment. I want you to do this. If you have your Bible open, if you're okay writing with your Bible, I want you to circle the word commandment, the singular use of the word commandment. And next to it, write, we'll turn to this in just a second. Next to it, write John 13, verses 34 and 35. He has said, listen, this is the command we have from the beginning. The command that we have is to love. See, Jesus came up with this, really for, for this, his day, it was a scandalous teaching. Because up until that point, religion was all about the things that you do and, and trying to appease God and do all these different things. And Jesus comes and says, here's all you have to do. Love God and love people. That's it. And so John, some 50 years later, is echoing those words and saying, if we're going to do our job well, if we're going to accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish in this world, if we're really going to be disciples of Jesus, it's not about religious rhetoric. It's not about making sure that you sit in the right chair in church. It's not about the way that you dress. It's about saying, how well do you effectively love the community around you? And I'll say this. If we do this well, it is much crazier than going jumping down the side of a hill. See, if we learn to love, saying, I'm going to put aside all of my wants and all my desires. It's not this ooey-gooey, feels-good love. It's, man, it's hard work and it's sacrifice and it's saying, I want to put the bettering of, of, of God's kingdom, I want to put that pre preeminent in my life. And I want to put the other people that God has placed in my life above myself. And that is hard work. And, and it isn't just this ooey-gooey love feeling. It's saying, I want to make a decision, a disciplined decision to do my very best to build up the kingdom of God in my life. 
And so John writes these words. He says, this is the commandment. Why did he switch from commandments, plural, to commandments, singular? Let's, let's slip back to that passage in John 13, verses 34 and 35, where it says this. Jesus is speaking here. And he's speaking, and what the, even the disciples have known, they grew up in, in a religious household. They've been taught the commandments from the time they were young. And Jesus comes and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Love is how I loved you. Like, love is Jesus' love. That's an extravagant, a crazy love. And then he says this in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And so when John writes in 1 John, 50 years, 50 years after the words of Jesus, he writes and says, there's a commandment. Everyone who knew John would have said, oh yeah, I remember back in your other writing, Jesus references this commandment. This new command to love one another as I, as lo- as I have loved you. And in fact, he says, this is how people are going to know that you're really following me. That you have love one for another. And so we say, okay, what does that look like in a practical sense? What does that look like for us? Because if the mission of the church is only accomplished by the people of the church, guess who the command to love is now put upon? Each and every one of us. And here's the thing, because we're going we're gonna, to, in just a second, get more practical on how we see that building up our church right now and a specific way you can do that. But here's the thing. For most of us right now, we have busy, busy lives. How many would agree right now your life is pretty busy? Like there's stuff that's going on. For most of us, we're at some sort of transition in terms of life happening. That's how life just perpetually seems to be. There's stuff that's going on, and, and, and this is taking place, and that's taking place. And so because of that, we have very limited resources when it comes to two areas in particular. We have limited resources when it comes to our time. Time is of a premium, and we know that, and we don't want to overindulge uh, ourselves and, and give up more time than, than we have. And we also have limited finances. And so we say, I don't, I don't want to over-promise myself in different areas when it comes to my time or my finances. And so because of that, we sit here and we make all the excuses in the world why, God, I want to be involved in your kingdom. But now's not the right time. But for us to effectively be called and fulfill the mission God has for us, it's, it's upon us as the church. It's not just going to happen because we walk in the doors. It's incumbent upon us to accept that responsibility. So our response has to be to do to this. Don't offer an excuse where God establishes a call. In your life right now, if you're a believer, if you're bought into what Jesus is doing in your life, he is calling you specifically to something, a task that only you can accomplish. And you sit here and you say, well, maybe you think, I've not been around church enough, I don't know how that works, or I don't, I don't see how this particular talent that I have can be used to impact God's kingdom, or, or whatever it is. Or, or maybe when we start talking about giving financially, you say, well, I'd love to do that, but right now things, things aren't really, and, and God starts to speak to us, and he starts to communicate to us about these things, and our response is to say, but God, I got this going on. Don't ever offer an excuse where God establishes a call. Because God right now is establishing a call in your life. For every one of us, if you're a child of God this morning, God has a call upon your life. The first thing you have to do is realize what that is. And the second thing you have to do is to surrender to that call. But God is establishing a call in your life. And so don't offer up an excuse when God is trying to establish a call. In particular, when we start talking about the overall mission of our church, we said last week, uh, the big thing we're trying to focus on is the mission. Our, our mission statement doesn't change. But our path to that mission statement does change. And we said there are four pillars we're going to focus on at the beginning of this year. Four things we really want to make sure that we're knocking out. 
And number one, we said this last week, was that, that every number matters. And the idea behind every number matters is that every single person that comes to the door of our church, that they matter. Because they matter to God, they matter to us. And so our goal this year is to say we want to make an impact. Last week we shared story after story after story of people whose lives have been transformed because of Jesus. And we said that's what we want to see continue. And the only way it happens is if we keep reaching people, if we keep loving people, if we keep serving people. And so we said this. We want to see this on a regular basis by the end of 2016. Is we have 250 people regularly impacted by Ridgepoint Church on a weekly basis here at 100 Hatfield Road. We want to make sure that happens. How do we do that? By continually growing, by continually pushing ourselves to be part of the mission. The second pillar is this, and this is really a big deal. The second pillar is that age is never an excuse. Age is never an excuse, and I don't care which side of the spectrum you come from, age can never be an excuse, and, and really age could, could get the better of us at any point. See, when we're in those life transition moments, uh, maybe we're, we're in high school, and we'll talk about this in a second. We think, well, when I get older, I'll become an adult. I'll become serious about God. And, and then you grow up, and you go to college, maybe, or you get married. And, and now it's like, well, I want to be used by God, build up his kingdom, but I'm, starting a, you know, I'm figuring out my wife or figuring out my husband. And once we get established, then we'll start getting serious about God. And then, then it's kids, and then it's work, and then it's always something. And before we know it, we find ourselves on the other end of the spectrum saying, man, I wish earlier I'd done something. But now I've had too much life behind me. I'm, I'm, I'm too old to be used by God. The Bible has examples of people like Abraham and Sarah. When Sarah was first told, Abraham had a promise that he was going to give birth to a son and have all these descendants. And, and, and it hadn't happened, hadn't happened so much, so they tried to circumvent God's promise. And God says, no, I still have a promise for you. So at the point where Abraham's 100 and, and Sarah's 90, they're, they're giving birth to Isaac. And when, when God first comes and tells Sarah that, Sarah laughed, saying, how could, how could that happen? I'm too old for that. And God says, no, I'm still going to use you. And in fact, if that's where you're at right now, you're saying, well, I could be used. When I was younger, I could have been used, but now life is kind of passed me by. As long as there's a heartbeat inside of you, as long as you're taking breath, God still says you can impact my kingdom. One of the godliest people I've ever seen in my family was actually my wife's grandmother. And I only got to see her towards the the tail end of, of her life, but to hear stories about how she used to be involved. And even when I saw her, probably in her late 60s, early 70s, on on, uh, she was still really involved in her church as much as she could be. She was there serving, doing some different things. Uh, she could no longer sing and do the piano stuff that she used to do, but she was still serving. But here's the thing that I loved. is she knew maybe she couldn't do the things that she did before, but we'd go visit them on a regular basis. And man, every morning, she would get up early, like really super early, and she'd read her Bible every day. And she'd do a little devotional journal every day. And then she had a prayer list, and sometimes it would take her hours, or at least an hour, to pray through that prayer list. And she did that every day. And by doing that, you knew at the end, like she would call you up and say, hey, I've been praying about, about this for your life. How's that going? And age is never an excuse on, on the tail end. But what we really want to focus on today is also on the front end. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Jeremiah. If not, the words again will appear up on the screen. But in Jeremiah, God is about to call a young man to be a prophet. And he's really young. And I love this passage because of what it communicates to, to, I think, most of us. It says in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. So this is God speaking to Jeremiah. Before you were born, I consecrated you. 
I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God had told that. God had said that to Jeremiah. And then it says this in verse 6. Jeremiah responds, says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Now, it doesn't clearly say Jeremiah's age. His response is to say, hey, my age is an excuse. And we're already trying to establish this idea that don't offer up an excuse where God establishes a call. But Jeremiah humbly comes and says, God, how am I supposed to speak and be a prophet to the nations? I'm only a youth. Now, it doesn't say what his age is, but what we do know from, from this passage is that his age was such that he was still dependent upon his parents, at least dependent upon his parents financially. Now, I know some of you are like, I got a son who's 40 years old who's still dependent upon myself. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. We're saying he was young. He had not established himself yet. He was not at all independent. And so he comes and he says, how can I speak? Like, like, I'm not even really taking care of myself yet. How can I go and be a prophet to the nations when, when I can't even pay for my own food? And God's response is to say this. Verse 7, Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. For all to whom I send you shall go, and wherever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, now for every one of us, whether the topic we're about to get into with children and youth is, is pertinent to you or not, for every one of us, when God establishes that call in our life, it is really easy to put up all these excuses and say, why I can't accomplish these things. But God's response to Jeremiah is say, don't offer up these excuses. And don't be afraid of them. I'm going to deliver you. I have a plan for you. And whatever I command you to do, you're going to do. So that's what we're at right now. If we say, God, I know you've established a call in my life. I just want to become aware of that call. Realize for us, as we take these next steps as a church, one of the things that we've talked aggressively about the last couple of weeks, really going back to our Vision 2020 meeting a couple months ago, is that we want to have an established, a fully established family ministry that we can partner with parents from birth through high school graduation and beyond, to say we want a, a cumulative approach that, that we realize that we're not the primary spiritual influences, but that you are, and we want to be able to partner with you. So how do, how do we get there? How do we say, how, how can we have a complete dynamic ministry to have us best impact and, and children and students and partner with parents to see them? Because the greatest legacy we're ever going to leave is a legacy we leave with our children. And we want to make sure that we get that right. And if you've not been paying attention, the way youth culture is going now is in direct conflict with what God is trying to teach us. And so what we're trying to say is how can we as believers do our best to extravagantly love the community around us and do our best to make sure that we're teaching our young people to go counterculture, not, not in a I'm going against the world type of thing, but to say, man, I want to be built up to impact God's kingdom. And I want to go against culture as best I can. When I see students making some of the decisions they make, I want to make sure I'm not making those decisions and those, the, having the repercussions because of that. And so how can we as a church see that effectively happening? Four things. If you're a note taker, write these four things down. These are four things that we have to realize for us to have that complete ministry we're looking at, for us to embrace the mission when it comes to our church. Four things that have to be realized. Number one is this. We have to realize the role of parents as the primary spiritual influence in their children's lives. We have to realize the role of parents as the primary spiritual influence in their children's lives. If you have a young person, maybe in elementary school right now, 
they're back in the back, and we have some adults who are loving on them and taking care of them and teaching them the Bible and, and teach them practical applications of that. And for the most part, they're here for an hour on Sunday morning and maybe for an hour on Wednesday night. So we get two hours a week to spend with them. And maybe you're doing some of this stuff at home to kind of partner with that, but still, they're here for, at church for two hours. We're fighting a losing battle if that's the only spiritual uh, foundation that they're, that's being laid in their life. Because for children and for students, attitude and behavior is caught much more than it's ever taught. And so our goal is not to retrain and re-educate your kids, but to partner alongside of you to make sure we're giving you all the tools and resources we can to make sure that you're doing that job because we're never going to be, and we're never ever going to be the primary spiritual influence in those kids' lives. You are. See, I saw that even with some kids who got really excited. When I was a youth pastor, even kids got really excited, really passionate. If they didn't have a foundation at home, it lasted for a very short time. Maybe they get excited during their middle school years or high school years. But the number, the staggering number that always got us in youth ministry was that 90% of students who are active in church through high school drop out of church their first couple of years after high school. So how do we combat that? How do we change it? Well, it begins, number one, with parents saying, well, I want to be the primary spiritual influence because when, when children in the ministry, when RPC Gids is gone, the parent is still going to be there. When they're out of youth group, the parent is still going to be there. So you're the primary spiritual influence, and our responsibility and our goal is to work alongside of you to make sure you have the best opportunity to raise your children in that environment. In fact, over in Proverbs 22, verse 6, it says this, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's our responsibility as parents. For me, that's my responsibility for my four kids, is to make sure I'm training up my child in the way that he or she should go, so when they're older, they'll return to those teachings. That's our main area of influence. For parents who make a decision when they have children and say, I'm, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom or I'm going to be a stay-at-home dad. And sometimes they think, well, that, that job isn't as significant as other people who are going out and changing the world. Listen, the most important impact you'll have is on your child's life. It's never belittle the role that you play because your role is pivotal. Second thing, if we're going to accomplish this, second thing that has to be accomplished is by involving your children in the life cycle of the church. We have a strategy of place, a strategy of discipleship that we want to see people get kind of current in this thing. And when it comes to adults, we say, Sunday morning, we love Sunday morning. It's exciting, and we love the band and singing together and, and all the stuff and the teaching. But if you're going to grow, it doesn't happen just on Sunday morning. Because, again, that's an hour a week. But it's involving yourself in the life cycle of the church, being involved in things like uh, family group and being involved in things like service, saying, how can I best be involved in a way that's going to bolster my chance to grow? Well, the same thing is true when it comes to our kids. Saying, so I want to involve them. We have a life cycle. We have a plan, a strategy in place to see children and students discipled. And so it's not just Sunday mornings, but it's coming on Wednesday nights for, for elementary group or, or Sunday mornings in the second service often for the middle school group or, or, or for Wednesday night youth group. All these opportunities to serve and to grow. One of my favorite events from last year was we took a team to the Dominican Republic. And, and I remember as we were kind of planning, we had a... a father come and he's like man my son really wants to go and I'm gonna go with him this year and 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 the son was in sixth grade going into seventh grade and and he's like my son's gonna go to the Dominican Republic with me and he was really really nervous because mom was here and mom was letting her son go to the Dominican Republic and she was really really nervous and and so we leave and his dad and son on this mission trip together and as we got there there's always a huge barrier when you first get there there's the biggest one being the language barrier there's cultural barriers and all that stuff but there's a language barrier Guess who the first person that, that broke that barrier was? 
the kid. Like the first day we're there, he's bonding with our bus driver. We're like, you guys can't even speak the same language. How are you communicating? And they just did. And the second day, we go to, to church there, and all the adults walk into the, the regular church service, and some of the kids were trying to get him to go to, to the, uh, the kids' area. He was in this kids' area with nobody else. There's probably 100 kids. Not one of them spoke English. And he was there all by himself, the only American there, and he got along fine. Seeing a father involve his son in the life cycle of church is how growth starts to happen. Involve yourself in the life cycle of church, but then also realize, man, the kids' ministry and, and the youth ministry, it's there to make sure that we have the best chance to see them grow in that grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. The third one is for the church to provide the right system for spiritual growth in our children. We've been talking about this for a while, uh, going back to Vision 2020. We have come upon this, this curriculum. It's not new. It's something that I used uh, off and on when I was in youth ministry. But Orange Curriculum is, is for me, the, the best curriculum that's out there in, in allowing your children to be discipled from the time they're born up through high school graduation and even beyond. Uh, Reggie Joyner and the guys who started Orange Curriculum really know what they're doing, really know what they're talking about. Uh, we know there's a price tag involved because people are saying, hey, I want to be a part of this. We're able to start that process this year of saying we're going to become an, an orange church when it comes to our children and students. And, and to see them, the, one of the things we love about Orange is that they try to teach the church and try to teach parents that our goal is not to work in opposition with each other, but to work in conjunction with each other. To say that our role as a church is simply to bolster what you're doing as parents. And so once we made a decision saying we're going to be bought in entirely, that this is what we want to see accomplished, we said, okay, this is what we're doing now. This is the direction that we're going. And to, to see that excitement, to see our, our, our children leaders getting pumped up about that is, is really, really powerful. To make sure that we have the best chance to see our children because we realize, and, and, and I love this. When I was at seminary, I was a really young youth pastor. If you don't know this, I get excited pretty easy. I think I said that last week. <laughs> but I get excited pretty easy. And I, I met this guy, Brian, and he was a youth pastor. We were very similar. Brian gets really excited pretty easily. I get excited pretty easily. The difference was Brian grew up going to church, and I didn't. And so for me, I was really, I got saved, and I started getting discipled, and I started becoming a, a small, small group leader in church and some different things, and eventually I took on the role of being a youth pastor. And so I was in my first position as a youth pastor. I'm going to seminary, finishing up my, my degree there, and, and I'm talking to Brian one day. And he's talking about the church that he was at, and he said, one of the things that frustrates me about the church is that whenever people talk about children, and especially about students, since he was a youth pastor, he said they always talk about students being the future of the church. And he said, the, the children and students aren't the future of the church. They're the present of the church. Like, they have a function right now. We can't allow age to be an excuse. And so we say, we want to make sure we're doing these things. We want to make sure we have the right opportunities for them to grow, the right opportunities for them to serve, and the right opportunities for them to be in a place where all that growth can start to happen. Because the fourth one, and this is probably the most important for what we're talking about today. The fourth one for us to get there is this. For us to... Um, for us to reach and disciple children and students to the degree that we want to, it takes committed, passionate adult leaders. Get that. For us to get to where we want to be in terms of disciple, reaching and discipling children and students, it takes two things. It takes people who are committed and people who are passionate. So when it comes to children and it comes to students, they can see right through a fake personality. And so if someone shows up and they're like, all right, I, I feel like I was guilted into serving, so I'm going to come and serve, and you're not passionate about it, uh, they're, they're going to read right through that and say, they don't really want to be here, they don't, they don't even like us, 
we're just kids to them, and, and it just is about, ba- listen, it's not about babysitting. What you do back in the back, it's not babysitting. You're doing ministry. You're training and discipling students and children. We want to make sure that we get that. And so we want people who are passionate, who, who love that, who says, this is the call of God upon my life. But we also want people who are committed. I had a chance, because I know students a little bit better, because that's what I did, I had a chance to see youth leaders that kind of come and go. And the youth leaders that stuck were the youth leaders who said, listen, I believe this is the area that God has, has called me to serve. And they might, they might help out in some other areas. It's not, it wasn't an exclusive thing, but they said, this is the area that I am called to serve in. And so I'm going to be here as best I can on a weekly basis so that these kids can start to build a relationship with me. And the more committed they were, I had some youth leaders that weren't exactly the youngest youth leaders. Like you think if you want to establish a youth ministry, get some young youth leaders who are really cool and everyone's going to love them and it's all going to be great. I had some leaders that weren't young and they weren't really cool. <laughs> but they loved the kids, they're passionate and they're committed. Man, it, it wasn't long before the kids started opening up to them and, and it, was, it was crazy. I started seeing these conversations I'm like, dude, that's so cool that you have this old guy that's kind of not so cool and, and kids just love him. It takes people who are committed we're passionate to see true life change happen. So if we do this, if we say we, we, we know God is calling us to do something, and maybe this is the area that God's called you, and here's what happens, because we all kind of say, okay, I'm listening to this message, but I want to go home and pray about it. If that genuinely is what has to happen, go home and pray about it. I don't want you to rush into anything. But I think for most of us, we say that. Now, I've been guilty of this in the past. It's kind of my confessions for a second. I go home, let me pray about this, and then life happens, and I don't so much pray about it as I, as I forget about it. Some of you have to go home and pray about this. Others, you don't have to pray about it because God's been calling you for a while. Say, man, here's your chance to serve. I've been calling you. Stop offering up excuses where God's establishing a call in your life. Because if we do this, if we say, man, here's, here's our big strategy, and our, and our big strategy that we have that's out there, the biggest thing we need to accomplish that strategy right now, the biggest thing, if we're going to do th- two things, reach more kids, which is what we want to do, and make sure we're discipling those kids effectively, the biggest obstacle we face right now is volunteer base. If we had that, it would transform our church. My goal is not to guilt anybody into anything. It has to be a call of God upon your life. But if you're saying right now, Man, I want to either find out more about kids' ministry or if I want to sign up for kids' ministry. Here's what I want you to do. Number one, if you know right now God's called you to do it, all you have to do is take your connection card. Write in a connection card that you want to be involved in kids' ministry, and I'll make sure I'll get those cards to Tanya, and, and she'll follow up, I promise, because <laughs> this is kind of a big deal to her. But the second thing, if, if you're not sure, if you're like, all right, I want to find out more information. Tanya's right, Tanya, go ahead and raise your hand. Right, That's Tanya right there. If you want to find out about kids' ministry, Tanya's our children's director. She'd love to talk to you about that as well. After the service, not right now, it'd be really awkward if you went to her now, but, but after the service, go up and talk to her, man, she'd love to talk to you about kids. So here's the deal, if we do this effectively, again, I said jumping down a hill is, is not as crazy as what we're talking about today. If we do this effectively, it's adults saying, I want to make sure I'm pouring the faith that I have into the next generation, especially when it comes to my own children, but then also when it comes to children who God has brought to the doors of Ridgepoint Church. And here's the thing. When we start to see transformation take place, it, transform, it transforms not just the heart of the one who's being loved on, but the one who's doing the loving. See, that same group of kids uh, that, that went on that trip, a lot of those same kids uh, grew up and ended up at a different church, and some of those kids were at that church with me. And by that point, they'd gone from being these crazy middle school kids to some very mature 
uh, high school, really devoted se- seniors in high school. And that year was the year Hurricane Katrina hit. And, and a lot of devastation, we heard about New Orleans, but a lot of devastation actually took place in Mississippi. And in particular, we had a chance to go and, and take a team to Gulfport, Mississippi, to serve in Gulfport, Mississippi. And the thing was, we started putting together a team, and I was kind of tasked, say, Jay-Z, we want you to put together a team and go to Gulfport, Mississippi. And I was really excited about it, and it just worked out that the week that we were able to go was spring break for the kids. So it's kind of like, all right, anybody in the church can go, but there were some kids who were signing up, these older seniors were going, who were really good at building things and whatnot. And, and so we started putting together this team, and I started to realize something, that our team was comprised entirely of kids, especially guys that were either 18 years or younger, there's a couple of, of girls that were in there as well, or everybody's either 18 or under, or most of them were either 70 or older. I was like the only one in the middle. Everybody else was either under 18 or over 70. And so I had this mixture of, of these, these young, energetic guys who were going on this mission trip with almost all of them were older, retired military people. I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> like these guys are like, all right, 730, we're going to bed. And these guys are like, we're just getting ramped up. Like, it's, it's going to be a long night. I'm like, oh, my goodness, this isn't going to. But here's what I saw that week was that, I mean, these kids started serving. And it took a couple of days, but, but the adults started noticing it. And I'll never forget because two of the guys that went with us, one was named Loman. And, and Loman, I never hear, heard anybody, heard Loman say anything really nice or, or really kind of giving applaud to anybody because of anything they did. But Loman started commenting on a couple of the guys that were with us. I mean, those guys are out there just serving and doing everything. Said, so started saying the same thing. By the time we came home from the trip, I remember Loman's wife met us at the church when we got done. And she came looking by name for a couple of the teenagers who were on the trip who she didn't know prior to us leaving. And she came and she's like, these, this is the only thing that Loman's talked about all week long is how well these kids have served. If we do our job effectively, we're teaching our children to go counterculture. Because culture's telling them right now, be selfish, focus on yourself, and chase after the things that you want. And you're going to find satisfaction. And these kids are finding over and over that that's not the case. And if we teach them to go counterculture, we teach them to make a difference. And some of the people who I know who have the, the highest self-esteem, they're, they're, they're doing the best things for people who said, man, some adult in church poured into me and loved on me. And because of that, I have faith in Jesus today. And I'm able to effectively serve him. And so our goal as a church is to make sure that happens over and over for us to get there, the big dream, what we want to accomplish in the next couple of years, the only thing standing in our way right now is to see those volunteers on a consistent basis. So again, take your card. At some point as we wrap up, fill out the card. Let us know you want to serve. If you have questions, talk to Tony. She'd love to do that. As we get into talking about a youth pastor in the coming months, we might have this talk again because he'll need the same type things. Uh, so just kind of pray about those things. Let's go to pray and we'll wrap up. Father, we thank you for uh, just the way that you call us. And God, you call us from, from diverse backgrounds with different things that happen in our life to be able to effectively serve you. And God, I know that as we gather, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in people's lives. I pray that you pull aside all those distractions. Uh, let us really listen to, to your spirit speaking to us about areas that we can serve and love. And God, it might not be in working with children or students. It might be in some different area. And God, that's fine. But God, our goal right now as a church is to build upon these pillars to say we want to be able to offer a complete family ministry. Because there are children who have not entered yet the doors of Ridgepoint Church that need to be loved on, that need to be taught your truth. And so, God, I pray that we respond in the most effective way that we can in truly discipling children to come to a relationship with you and to see them grow in that relationship. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.